pastors here, uh, Pastor Chip and his family um, are still on a vacation, and uh, I want to do something this morning as we, as we start um, the, the message part. Uh, it's always good, and, and I've said this multiple other times when I've preached and filled in for pastor while he's away on vacation. Uh, it's good for us as a church to pray for our pastor and to pray for his, uh, just his spirit. He carries a lot. Um, you know, I, I, I carry things for youth ministry. I, uh, others, Ben carries and Sarah carries things for worship and, and, and for our services. And, and Janae and, and Carol, they carry things for our, our children. Pastor Chip carries all of that. And on top of all of that, he, he carries things for, for you and me when we come to him and we come to him for guidance and counsel. And so we just want to we just want to stop this morning. I just want to take a moment. Uh, they're they're on the last leg of their trip. I know they're coming home, but I, I want to pray for them as their way that God would just refresh them today. Dear God, we come to you today and, and we lift up to you, our pastor and his family. Dear God, we just pray that as they are um, as they are away, that you would just give them a uh, refreshed spirit. Uh, God, that you would uh, give them new dreams and, and, and new visions for our church and that you would just give him uh, an energy that only can come from you to, to do this job that, that, is, that is not an easy job, that's not a job that uh, any person who wasn't called by you would even attempt to do. And so, dear God, we just pray that you would just be with their family today, um, keep them safe as they travel, watch over and protect them, bring them back to us, and uh, bring them back to us refreshed, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. This morning, we are going to continue on with our series over the book of James. And we have two weeks left today and, and next week, and then we will move on to uh, a different fall series. But we've been going through the book of James this summer. And uh, the thing that we've talked about the most with James uh, is this idea. Uh-oh. Technology's failing me. This idea, I'm going to have Jonah help me in the back. It's this idea that faith acts. And uh, James tells us this idea over and over and over again throughout, throughout this book, this letter that he wrote. James 1.22 tells us, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourself. In 2.14-17, this is basically just the, the heartbeat of this idea. What good is it, brother, dear brothers and sisters, if you say, I have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister uh, who has no food or clothing, and you say to them, goodbye, have a great day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. James 2.26 says, just as the body is dead without breath, so also is faith dead without good works. And finally, in James 3.13, he says, If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. We're not just promoting doing good things. We're promoting doing good things out of a faith, a grounded faith in Jesus that should change us. We should not be able to say, oh, well, I just, I, I believe uh, in Jesus, and then go about our, our days, our weeks, as if nothing was different. The people at your jobs, the people in your schools, the people that you are around every day should know that you have a faith, because 
It should play out in your actions. It should change your character. It should affect the way that you treat one another. Um, we're called to be people of love and care for people, just as Jesus says. We're called to be a servant. And that stuff should play its way out in our lives. And so this, this is the heartbeat of the book of James. And, and throughout most of this, we've been talking about the fact that these things that we're talking about, um, the, 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 the things that James brings up in our lives, um, they are things that come about from faith. Um, but we are called to be a people who not only just believe, but also do. So this morning we're going to look uh, in James chapter 5 today, verses 1 through 12. We have a lot of ground to cover. Um, but there, there's a temptation when you look at James 1, uh, 5, 1 specifically, 1 through 6, but it could be the whole entire section that we're going to look at today. And that temptation is to look at it and say, well, that doesn't really fit me. So I'll, I'll listen to what you have to say, I'll read it, it's, but it's not really going to affect me because that's not, that's not where I am. Uh, when I was in junior high, one night we had an afterglow, these events that we would do after the evening service, and the event for that, that afterglow specifically was to go to the mall to do a video scavenger hunt. Our youth pastor had arranged it, he hid adult leaders throughout the mall, and we had to go find them. We'd given clues. We had to go find them in the different stores they were hiding in. And they had something specifically that we had to do on camera. Now, this was, this was in the 90s still. So this was before the day and age where you had like a phone that would just record for you. Uh, this was also not just like the small, like cool little compact cameras that you could take into places. Uh, we looked like the 6 o'clock news rolling in to cover the mall. Right? We had the thing that had to sit on the, the shoulder. Uh, you had to put a whole VHS tape in there. Um, for those of you who were born after the year 2000, that looks like a brick. Um, but we have to walk in there, and we have to find these sponsors. We have to do whatever it says uh, we had to do on camera. And then after the whole thing got over, we were going back to the church to watch everybody's and laugh at each other and, and have fun. Um, but my, my specific group were almost done. It wasn't necessarily done on speed. It was more a creativity kind of thing. And we had one sponsor left to find. And this sponsor's name was Rob Kennedy. Now, this is what you need to know about Rob Kennedy. Rob Kennedy uh, was about 350 pounds of solid muscle. He was, uh, he was the catcher for our church softball team. He was a police officer. Uh, I once watched him as we were driving and taking kids home on a church bus late at night. Two kids thought they'd be hilarious and throw eggs at the bus. I watched Rob Kennedy throw the bus in the park, hop off, chase them down, hop over a fence, and bring them back by their shirt collars to clean the eggs off of the van. This is, this is Rob. And the last thing you knew about Rob, we had a nickname for Rob. And the, nicks, the nickname for Rob was Bubba. So we're finding Bubba in the mall. And we get the clue, and before the clue even opens up, I'm just starting to think of all the places that, that Rob could be. There was the sporting goods section at Target. Uh, there was uh, like a hunting store. Uh, there were uh, just these manly places that I would imagine Bubba hiding in the mall. And so we're, uh, most, all, almost everybody in my group were, were junior high boys. Okay? So keep that in mind before I read the, the, uh, the clue. This was the clue that we were given to find Bubba. Bubba is hiding where Vicky is also hiding something. Think about that for just a moment. As the clue set in, and as us sixth grade boys figured out 
where exactly Bubba was hiding. We told ourselves that can't, that can't be right. He's got to be these. We even walked a few other places just hoping, hoping we had misread the clue. But sure enough, we turn the corner, we look in the window of Victoria's Secret, and in the back, there is police officer, manly man, Bubba. And not only is he in there, it's about closing time. He's helping them vacuum. So Bubba is standing in the back of Victoria's Secret, surrounded by all the stuff that Victoria's Secret sells, and he's vacuuming the floor for them. If there's ever an image or a picture of something that doesn't fit, it's this one. And this is the way that we can feel when we read passages about rich people and about persecuted people. We can read that and say, you know what, I'm not rich, that doesn't apply to me, or I'm not persecuted because we live in, in a, a free country that, that doesn't even begin to understand the idea of persecution. And this morning, just like, uh, just like, just like Bubba and Victoria's Secret, we can find ourselves saying, no, that's not for me. But there's something underneath of the message today that I, uh, underneath of the, excuse me, the face value of James 5, 1 through 12, that I just want us to read and consider because what I think we're going to find out is we have way more in common and can understand and grasp, and this passage is just for us um, as it was for the people that James was writing to. So with, uh, with me, turn to James 5. Uh, starting, we're going to read this in a few different chunks. But first, to start out, I'm going to read 5, 1 through 3. And it says, Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting, out, uh, counting on will eat away, at you, uh, eat away at your flesh like a fire. This corrosion treasure, this corroded treasure that you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. Now, at the very beginning of that, where he says, look here, you rich people, obviously, James is writing about rich people. But he's not just writing about rich people. If you, uh, if you look into um, the, the context of the day, remember, this is, a, this is a letter written to Christians, to people who already believe uh, in Jesus. All right? There are some wealthy Christians at this point. Um, you know, Paul writes to a few of them. We, we, we hear stories about how the first, church, the first century church in Jerusalem pooled together their resources, and they were able to sell things and, and provide for people. Um, so money uh, was not, um, it wasn't just poor Christians at that point, but the rich that James is writing and talking about are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the people that operate and that run the temple. Now, you might hear that, and you might say, well, this is even less about me and my situation, because that's definitely not me either. Uh, but hang tight with me for just a few moments. The, if you, uh, if you uh, even understand the person of James, you could even understand why he would be upset with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. One, one main obvious reason is that they killed his brother, right? They were the ones, even before James came to believe that his brother Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, he watched the Roman government and the Pharisees and the Sadducees crucify excruciating 
uh, excruciating experience, watched his brother go through the whole thing. And that alone would make a person upset at a group of people who would do something like that, especially to somebody that he knew about, loved, and cared for. But James is also frustrated at the rich because he sees and he knows what they're doing. He knows how the Pharisees and the Sadducees are making their money. He knows why they have fancy clothes that are going to be moth-eaten someday. He knows why they have this stockpile of all of, this, all of this wealth, all of this material possession. And it's because of their business practices in the temple, the taxes that they would charge for the temple. It was in the way that uh, I, I, I spoke uh, uh, during an Easter series that we did a little while back about the process to come and to make a sacrifice, especially around the time of, of Passover. You would come in with your animal and you present it to the temple and they would look at it most of the time and say, yeah, that's not good enough. You're going to have to buy one of our animals. So then they would have to go over to that table, and they'd have to find out how much it costs, and then they'd be told, but you know what, the currency, the, ki the type of money that you have isn't good enough, so you're going to have to go over to this table, and you're going to have to exchange your money. All right, this is, this is the scene that Jesus walks into and just completely wipes out in uh, the Passion Week story. And so you would go and you would exchange your money at an extremely high rate. You'd pay a lot to just get a little bit back. You'd go over to the table, you'd buy an animal that was like three times the price of what it should cost. And that's then what you would go and you'd sacrifice. All in the name of the forgiveness of sins. And in doing that, this group of people made a lot of money on the backs of people who didn't have nearly the same amount as they did. And James knows this, and he's so frustrated with, with this. And, and James is also frustrated because there are people in the world that he knows, there are Christians in the world that he knows, that, that look up to these church leaders still. They want to be like them. They think that, that is the, to have that amount of wealth is something that's important. That's something that they should strive for. And he knows, James knows the words of Jesus. He knows the way that Jesus talked about money uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say about money in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, nobody can serve two masters, right? You can't serve both God and money. If, if striving for wealth, if striving for personal gain, if striving for uh, an abundance is your, is your main objective and goal in life, then you've completely missed the point and we're told that we can't pursue God and money. Now, pursuing God and living in God's blessings can definitely bring money and wealth. And what we have been trusted with, we are going to be held responsible for. Just like the, the, the parables of the, the people who, who have the talents, right? It's not bad that one of the guys ended up with ten talents, right? It's not bad to be wealthy. James is not bashing having wealth at all. But what he's bashing is the heart of the people who have the wealth. Because he knows, you know, most of the time when it's presented, a sin is presented in Scripture, there's, there's a, a message of repentance that kind of follows closely with it, right? Um, when, you know, Jesus is, is telling people now, you know, I've, I've healed you, I've forgiven you, go and, and sin no more. And, and he's, there's an act of forgiveness, there's an opportunity, a, a message that's presented. James doesn't give that here. We don't find this opportunity for repentance. What we find 
is basically a death sentence. Because James knows the heart of these people. And that's why he's talking about them in the very next sentence. Weep and groan with anguish. Weep and groan. The words used here are, it's, it's not just a, a crying, but it's a crying that stems from your gut. And it's a groaning is, is not just a, oh, it's a, it's a howl. It's a shout of pain. Um, when, I, when I was reading about this this week, a, a, a scene from a movie came back into my brain. It's one of the only times I, it's one of the only times I think I've ever like, gotten emotional watching a movie. Uh, I give my wife a hard time because she gets emotional pretty quick. She can cry at a commercial. Um, but but I, it's, it's very difficult for me to get really emotional about a movie. And in, in the 90s, there was a movie that came out in the late 90s. I think it was like 1998, a movie called Simon Birch. And I don't promote the movie, but there's a scene in the movie that's, that just embodies this idea of weeping and groaning in anguish. Uh, Simon Birch is, is, born, is a boy that's born uh, with dwarfism. He's very small. And uh, he goes through life treated kind of like a freak. His own parents, his own family don't want anything to do with him. There's one boy who also the town kind of looks down upon that becomes his friend. His name is Joe. So Joe and Simon are friends, and, and Joe's mom immediately uh, feels compassion over Simon, and she's always looking out for Simon. When people are mistreating Simon, she's there defending him. And it's just one of the only adults in Simon's life that really cares about him as a person. And so uh, the other thing that Simon loves is baseball. And Simon uh, plays baseball every year. And every year he sits on the bench. The only time they put Simon in is when they need a base runner because he's so small that no pitcher can hit the strike zone that he has. And so they put him in with, with strict instructions always never to swing the bat. Well, one day they were getting just clocked by another team. They were, they were down by a lot. They just wanted it to be over. So the coach puts Simon in and he tells Simon, swing away. So Simon watches the first two pitches because they're not, they're not good pitches to swing at. And the coach is just going after him from the side, like, swing, Simon, swing the bat. And so the very next pitch comes in, and Simon swings away and makes contact. And they watch. Everybody in the stadium is just shocked that Simon's made contact with the ball. And they watch the ball travel foul. And they watch the ball strike Joe's mom in the temple. And it struck at just the right place for her, for, for it to stop her brain. And she died. The only adult that cared about Simon, the only friend that Simon had, he just felt responsible for killing his own mother. Doing the thing that he thought was the thing that brought him the most joy, which was playing baseball. And the next scene, Simon drops his bat from that moment does not run over to, the, to the, the whole scene where everybody's at. He runs away from everybody because he feels so horrible about what he did. And he runs out onto this pier because by, by, they were, lived on a coastal town. He runs out on this pier, and he has such a like, high, squeaky voice, but with everything he got, he just, he just yells out, I'm sorry, and he's there by himself. And that picture is what James is telling rich people. You need to weep and groan with anguish because today I know where your heart is. I know that you don't care about God. 
the God that you claim to serve. You may believe in Jesus as the Lord and Savior or not, but you're still supposed to be people of God. And you're not, you're not loving people. You're not caring for people. You're not caring and loving for God himself. You care about money. You care about wealth. You care about position. And I think those things, caring about those things, whether or not we feel like we are categorized as rich, we can identify with the want for those things, the security that those things, we feel like those things can bring. Sure, we would all probably say, well, we could use a little bit more of money or we could use you know, a better car, a better house. A, but we put our security in those things. And that's the exact thing that James is writing about these, these rich people, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus came and turned their whole thing upside down, and they weren't happy about it. Why? Because it stripped away all the things that they truly cared about. And this morning, if you're here and the message of Jesus tears away at something that you care about, it may be time to, to weep and groan. And look at our own situation and realize, you know what? We've been serving two masters. We've been trying to serve two masters. Because as, the, as Jesus points out, we can't. It's impossible. I decided to look up the definition of rich uh, for us this morning. And this is what I found. According to Webster, just looking in English, not looking in just the, the original Greek language, we get this. Having an abundant, uh, abundant possessions and especially material wealth, having high value, and being well supplied. There's a, a theologian named Stanley Hauerwas, and this is what he had to say uh, about rich people. The first century church had a belief that if you had two coats and your neighbor had none, then you were stealing from your neighbor. With that definition of rich, having not necessarily just money, but having an abundance and knowing that there are people in our community who don't, we are stealing. And so this morning, having that kind of, having that kind of mindset, looking at my own situation, ask me the question, who am, I, who am I stealing from? What area of my life do I have an abundance in? And where around me are there people who lack that? I, when we were uh, getting ready for Easter and then for our Serve Sunday, we went out into the community and we passed out flyers. And I was, I was really taken aback just two streets down this way, three streets down this way. Um, I gave flyers to some people in some houses. They had technically a roof and walls and a door. But they didn't have much else. They didn't have any of the comforts or the amenities that I know I have. Looking at, at the state of, of where they were living and what they had, it looked like they were maybe one, one welfare check probably away from not being able to have the basics. Um, didn't look like they had an abundance of, of anything in their home. That's, that's three streets away from where I come and I worship every day and, and find so much joy, find so much hope. And I know that there are people three blocks away who don't have the basic things. I've heard it multiple times said that 
the community of Napoleon, we really don't have like a homeless population. We really don't have uh, the, the, the needs of Napoleon are, are a lot different than you would find in an inner city or different things. There are people who technically have a roof and walls, but are just as homeless as those who you would find in an inner city that live in Napoleon. There are kids in our school system, in our community, that don't have families. And we get the opportunity, we're not, get, we don't get the opportunity, we, we are called by God as followers of him to take the abundance that we have and to provide for them. I think the early church was, was on to something when, when they got together and they pooled resources together and it said nobody went without in those times. What resources, what abundance do we have that we can go out to the city of Napoleon, the city of Liberty Center, the city of Defiance, the city of Holgate, um, all the communities that we, we live around? What, how, how can we give of our abundance because we read from James what happens if we don't finishing finishing up this section before we move on um, wealth rots away fine clothes are eaten by moths and gold and silver gold and silver technically doesn't corrode but what James is is just making a, a, a point on is there, there's going to come a time where gold and silver don't matter at all. And if that's what we care about, then one day, when we're standing before the throne of God in judgment, if you remember back to our Real God series, there was a time uh, in that where, where Pastor Chip shared with us about the coming, the, the days of judgment and how that, how that looks. There's going to come a day when we're standing before God, and James says, your wealth is going to testify against you. You're going to stand in front of God and the abundance, not money necessarily, if we don't have a lot of that, but there's going to come a time where we stand and God is going to look at what we found important. And he's going to look at all the people who we didn't help because we found this important. And James wants early, the early Christians and he wants the Christians in 2019 in Napoleon, Ohio, he wants us to think about that. So often we can go through life and we don't live as if there's going to be a final day of judgment. And I know this isn't necessarily a happy message or a, one that just brings joy and puts a pep in our step this morning, but we don't live sometimes as if there's going to be a final day of judgment. We don't live as if there's going to be consequences for our actions. Now, thankfully, listen, we serve a God who gives us hope, who gives us forgiveness, who gives us new life. And that is definitely true. But from that new life, from that hope, from that peace that we only find in him, we're called to again live out this faith that we have. And that should play itself out in us providing from our surplus. Moving on, and I know we got, we got a lot of ground to cover uh, and with a little bit of time that we have left. Um, moving on to James 5, 4 through 6, James continues and he says, For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields, who, who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. 
You have, sent, you have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do, who do not resist you. Like I said, the Pharisees were known for their shady kind of acts of business within the temple. There's another group of people here that James is also bringing into the fold, and that is the landowners. The landowners of the day, see, there's a lot of, there, there, there was a lot of gold and, and material wealth, but there was also land wealth. And especially back in, in that day, if you had land and you had food, those were just as big, if not bigger, necessities than gold and silver. And the landowners were notorious for cheating people out of their wages and their money. They would go, um, uh, there's a, a parable that, that Jesus throws out about the last days. The, the, the landowner goes into the marketplace and he would get workers and he'd bring them out and he'd pay them. He'd pay the last ones that he brought in the same amount that he'd pay the very first ones. Um, that was how business was actually done. They would, the landowners would go into the marketplace, they would find people needing work, and they would take them out into the field. But unlike the, the landowner in Jesus' parable, who's paying everybody the same amount and is paying them well, landowners were notorious for going in, telling them, you can come work for me for this amount an hour, and then when you leave, uh, I'm only going to pay about half of that. But they get you, they, they would hook you in to coming and working for them by offering a wage that they really weren't going to pay. And that's a lot of times how business was done. And last week we talked about uh, some, some merchants who got in trouble because they were, they were living as if they were uh, outside of, of God's need of control over their schedule and their time. They're saying, you know, we're going to go do this and we're going to go do this and we're really not paying attention to what God wants us to do. Um, so merchants, you, it, it, it's very, it was very much so, especially in that part of the Roman Empire, uh, the, the, the merchant scene, the, the, the marketplace was kind of one of the hubs of life. And at the, the heart of the hub was corruption, cheating, stealing. And so James knows that we have Christians that are living within this realm. And what he's telling Christians is, listen, you see all these shady practices. You cannot act like the rest of them. Your ethics matter. I, when I was going through my master's class um, uh, over business ethics and uh, they shared this scenario. There was a guy, and I can't remember the, the company or the name or whatever. The details really don't matter. Uh, essentially, this guy uh, s stole a little bit of money from a company, but it was money that he was going to get back uh, in return once the, the deal was done. And the, the idea was presented to the class, did this man ethically fall short of a Christian standard of business? And I knew I was taking the class with people who were not necessarily professing to have a Christian faith. It was a Christian university. However, the track that this, that this degree was in was not necessarily aimed at people who already stated that they had a belief in Jesus. And their response was, because this guy was going to get that anyway, no, it was just fine. It, it happens a lot in business, and that's okay. And I was one of the only ones that was like, yes. He stole. Like, it wasn't guaranteed. Uh, you know, if everything plays out the way that it's supposed to, yes, he's going to get his money. So why couldn't he just wait for it to play out that way? 
Our, our ethics matter. And if you are a business person this morning, hear me out. Your ethics in the workplace matter. Jesus cares about how you, how you handle your employees, how you handle your money. Jesus cares about how you present Jesus to those who you work with. And the moment you steal, the moment you do something shady, you're under the table, you not only hurt yourself, but you hurt your ability to witness to other people. And James is telling the people in, in, first, in the first century, in, in Jerusalem and the, in the surrounding areas, listen, your business, your business ethics in the marketplace have to be above reproach, or you're going to be no better than the Pharisees that maybe they didn't, maybe they aren't the ones that are out killing the innocent themselves, but their, their decision-making is doing it. And they're, they're just as responsible for people who die from starvation and who, who die because they're in the way than, than you will be by, be, be by being involved in the marketplace and cheating people out of wages, cheating people out of money. And the thing is, they they often felt like they were going to get away with it. The guy in that specific thing in, in that class uh, actually jumped out of a window from about the 20th floor because he couldn't live with what he did. And he knew that if he went back and he told them that his reputation, everything within the business world would be a mess. And he would never be able to get that back. And a lot of times, it's not... It's not the moths and the, the things of this world that eat away at our possessions. It's going to be, it's in the end, it's going to be our own conscience. We're not going to be able to live with ourselves when we continually make decisions with our money, with, with our influence that hurt others. If you follow church history, you'll know that um, what the Pharisees were doing in that time um, was not the only time in the history of the church that the church failed to act like the church. Um, about 1,500 years later, from that point, there was a man named Martin Luther. He went and hammered uh, his 95 thesis on the door of the church in Wittenberg, and his count was that the, the Catholic church at that point in time was completely robbing and stealing from the poorest of the poor just so they could come and pray for somebody that they felt like was, was uh, in, in purgatory or in hell, or they wanted to have them buy pieces of, of wood or metal that they would claim was a part of the cross, or for uh, part of a, a, a nail that was, was uh, a part of the crucifixion, or, or some, some object that they could purchase. And they were literally cheating people out of their money, right and left. And Martin Luther goes to Rome, and he just sees this, and he just cannot believe that the church is, is doing this. And it leads, it leads to a reformation. And what he chose to do that day ultimately played out so we could have a church here in Napoleon, Ohio. The church has a big opportunity, but we also face historical repercussions if we fail to be the church. My, my church history professor in college, Dr. Crutcher, he always, uh, he'd always tell us this periodically throughout the semester, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. 
we can't be a, a, a Christian people who have an unhealthy view of wealth and money, who have an unhealthy business ethic in the workplace and in the marketplace, and have any type of influence over our world. We can't, have, we, we can't hope to reach the lost people, the broken, the hurting, if we're serving the God of wealth, money, and abundance. Everybody feeling good? Got it? Well, we're, we're going to shift. So we've been talking about the rich, and I said that you guys, uh, you guys probably struggle with, with maybe identifying with the rich. We're going to shift to the other side that you probably also find a way of, of struggling to see how you maybe fit. And the, that is the persecuted. James uh, chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the they eagerly look for the value um, for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For, uh, for instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him in the end. The Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. James is writing this part of chapter 5 to give hope. The, as we've talked about before, the church in the first century at this point in time is heavily persecuted. They're under persecution uh, from the, the Jewish synagogues. They're also under persecution from the Roman Empire. And it doesn't matter where they tend to go. Uh, people are being martyred. People are being um, killed and, and, and crucified for their beliefs. Um, and, and it's what necessarily, it's, it's kind of what Jesus told them would happen. And so James is... Uh, James is communicating with them that, listen, there's going to come a time when Jesus comes back. And all of this persecution, all of these things that you're enduring right now will all be worth it in the end to stay true to Jesus. And he's going to come back and he's going to take you to heaven with him. And uh, we, we uh, especially here in Napoleon, Ohio, we love us a good farmer's reference, don't we? We understand it. When you plant... When you plant in a field, uh, we live in a culture that hates to wait, right? We hate, we want things to happen immediately. This is why Amazon now offers one-day shipping, right? Because we don't want to wait for what we order, for what we get, for what we want. We want it now. Um, and James is telling the Christians who want deliverance from this persecution now that we have to be patient and we have to wait. And he uses the farmers as the, this example. Um, farmers plant a field, and they don't just get the crop the next day. They have to water it. They have to tend it. They have to take care of it. They have to go out into the fields on a daily basis, and they see very little progress each day. They see some progress in some seasons. Some seasons, plants grow faster. Some, uh, sometimes you have to wait longer. But you have to wait for the crop to come. And so James is telling them, listen, we are, we are a people who should have hope and who should live in that hope. We so often, um, especially when I was growing up, and I don't know if maybe, 
Maybe you guys uh, were in the same boat as me. If you grew up in church and they started talking about the second coming, this was not this glorious thing that you talked about. It was a thing that freaked you out. Jesus coming back and you missing it. We had, we had movies um, that we would watch, like A Thief in the Night, where, where Jesus would come back and you would just see the people that got left and the people who, who struggled, and the, you read the Left Behind novels that came out in the, the, the 80s and 90s, and, and uh, the, the return of Jesus was not this thing that was supposed to be filled with hope. It was, it, it was something to be scared of, and it was things that um, pastors would, would sometimes even use to scare people into, into believing in Jesus, into, into coming to the altar, because, hey, you don't know when Jesus is going to come back, and you don't want to be left, and so you better get down here, and you better pray. I, I was at camps where I heard those very messages. And, and so I, I grew up scared to death that Jesus was going to come back. I had a whole life of things I wanted to do. I, like, I'm hoping Jesus comes back maybe when I'm 90. I'll be okay with that. But I've got all this stuff I want to do, experience in life. And, and if you come back right now, it's gonna, I'm, I'm not going to get to, to, to do those things. And so I was, I was scared. I wasn't excited about the coming of the second coming of Jesus. But what James is telling us is this is not something to be scared of. This is something to wait eagerly for. We, uh, we had a, a chocolate lab named Harley when we first moved here. And the, th- the thing about Harley, from the moment we got her uh, until the end, she loved chews and popcorn. And if you would, it, she would come get you if she really, really, really wanted it. She'd come get you and she'd, she'd get you with her nose and she'd tell you, come here, come here. And so you'd go and you'd follow her and she would go and just sit in front of the cabinet that she knew that the chews were hiding in. And so you, then you'd go and you'd get it and you'd hold it up and she would just, she would just sit and she would kind of do this dancing number where her tail was like wagging and she was moving and she'd just sit and her eyes wouldn't leave it. You could move it all around and her eyes are just fixed on it. She was eagerly awaiting that chew. Now, if you, if you take that image and that picture, this should be the way that we live life. Eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back again. The, uh, the definition of eager if I can find it. The definition of eager means marked with enthusiastic or impatient desire or interest. James is calling us to be patiently impatient. We can find hope. See, we, you, you may not feel like you're persecuted this morning. And I'm going to, this is, this is kind of where we're going to wrap things up, and I'm going to invite Sarah to come forward. You may not feel persecuted this morning. But you might feel like, Culture is frustrating. And you may feel like the days get darker instead of lighter. And you might be frustrated with how the political scene looks. And you might get frustrated on how some of the local stuff looks. And you might get frustrated on just how you feel like the world isn't as safe as it was, how the world is not um, what you would have designed or hoped that it would be. But we get, this, we get this message from James, that we have hope, that we are serving a God who's going to come back and put things to rights. The world is not going to be as it is now 
for eternity. God's going to come back. He's going to restore his creation. We, as his bride, the church, get to live in that. We get to experience the, the fullness and the fulfillment of God. We get to live for eternity with him. And it's going to be one big, awesome worship service. And that's the hope. That's the hope that we patiently wait for. And this morning, you might feel down. You might feel like um, things aren't going the way you want them to go health-wise. Things aren't going the way you want them to go in your marriage. Things aren't going the way you want them to go uh, in, with your job, with uh, just all the different things in life that if we let them, like, they can weigh us down. And the way that we as believers find relief from that is just by eagerly awaiting our Heavenly Father to put the world to rights. And we, while we're waiting, we patiently get to be a part of that. We get to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. When we see people in need, we get to give. We get to to go to them and we get to provide just like God does for us. And so we make it through this time of patiently waiting by being completely observant to those around us, by loving people who need love, by caring for people who need care, not hoarding our own abundance, not living in a corner, not being afraid, but going out and being loved. And we're promised by God that if we do that, If we live that way, if we have that mindset, then not only can we do that, we can do that with courage. We live in a a day and an age where fear and anxiety uh, is dealt with and talked about a lot, and it's very prevalent, and people struggle with it. But James tells us, if we live as though we serve a God who's in control and who's going to come back again, and we are going to be... uh, we are going to get to live for eternity in heaven. Fear and anxiety, no place. God provides courage if we are willing to wait patiently for him and if we're willing to care about him above all else, including our own wealth and money and material possessions that we can have. And we just care and love for those around us out of our own abundance. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for just these words from James today. Uh, at first glance, we're not rich as most are. Uh, first glance, we're not persecuted as those who we know to be persecuted are. We didn't experience, as James talked about, the things that Job experienced. We haven't, we haven't lost everything. We haven't been ridden with disease and, and, and left for dead like Job was. That's not us. We weren't persecuted the way that the early church has been. We weren't dragged off. We weren't weren't thrown in, in chains. We weren't fed to lions. But God, you you delivered a message to us today that I feel fits us exactly where we're at. When we when we feel like we're not rich, it's really easy then to not give. And it's really easy then to not be generous. And it's really easy. For us to think that that uh, 
you know, the world is the way it is around us and, and we'll just pull back and we'll live in, in our own little corner and we might be afraid that the world's going to affect us, is going to hurt us. But God, we serve, we serve a God who not only has overcome sin and death, but who's going to come back. And dear God, may we be a people that you find eagerly waiting for your return. May we be a people who live in the courage that comes from that. May we be, may we be a people who go out into our world and we find the, the needs that we have, uh, that, we, uh, that we can provide for, the things that we have abundance in. We find the needs around us and we give and we help and we serve in those areas. And we accurately reflect the attitude of Christ, of being a servant. God, may, may there be nothing in this world that holds us back. May there be nothing in this world that keeps us from acting. Dear God, be with us this week as we go from this place. Be with us in our, in our interactions, in our own marketplaces, in our own schools, in our own homes and neighborhoods. And may we be a people who care for others. May we be a people who love other people the way that you have loved us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming this morning. You are dismissed.